Hello and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors of all genres. I'm Emma Kuntz, religion news editor at Publishers Weekly. Today, I'm speaking with Laura Naughton, whose memoir, The Jaguar Man, was published by Central Recovery Press, the sponsor of today's podcast. Hello, Laura. Thanks for joining us. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. You're welcome. So, The Jaguar Man tells the story of your abduction while on vacation in Belize and the aftermath, including your healing. Can you tell us what the title means and why you picked it? Sure. The Jaguar Man in the memoir is how I refer to the man who picked me up in his cab, pretending to be a cab driver, and who kidnapped me into the jungle. And um, and I spent several hours with him. And I don't know his name. I know very little about him. But after I was released, I had so many questions about him that I just started creating an identity for him. And thinking of him as a jaguar was my way of trying to get a handle on the situation. This jaguar man, this this part predator, part man, someone who's very strong, imposing, scary. You know, I kind of play with magic realism and myth and, and metaphor as I think about him and imagine the parts of his life that I don't know. And I named the book The Jaguar Man because... Although the memoir is about my experience with him, it's so much about how this individual impacted my life and how I think we impacted each other's. And so putting the focus of the book on the man is a way to kind of shift the attention to not the necessarily the victim of rape, but the but the, the initiator, the perpetrator, yeah. um, whose story it is first. And then throughout the book, you refer to the assault you suffered as X. And I wondered, why is this? Why did you refer to it as X? X to me stands for more than rape, for more than kidnapping. Okay. It stands for the fear. It stands for the intensity. It stands for the act itself. It stands for all the emotions that go with it. It stands for the object, the knife. It stands for the environment. And so for me, when I think about the experience, I don't think of one isolated act or, or particular moment. And so X was my way of just kind of broadening out the rape itself. I think it's sometimes it's very easy to think about rape just as a physical act. But in my experience, it just felt like it was so much more than that. It's kind of like your own interpretation of the word. That's right. Okay. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. So the story about a boy and a tiger, which I assumed, correct me if I'm wrong, but I assumed you were talking about the life of Pi. That's correct. The book helped you cope with what was happening to you. And then after it was all over and you were back in the U.S., you mentioned buying other books that brought you comfort. Did the solace you found in books play a role in your decision to write The Jaguar Man? Oh, yeah. I've always been a book lover. I've always found wisdom, guidance through literature. Reading The Life of Pi while I was on that trip was such a gift. And I had just gotten to the part in the book where the boy had begun to understand that he needed to care for the tiger in order for himself to be all right for he himself to be well, 
right? They, they were so intricately connected that one couldn't be well without the other. Mm. And I had just finished that section and closed the book and went on my way and met my Jaguar man. Oh my um, and so that was information that was very, very useful. In fact, when I got back, I wrote to Jan Martel and I thanked him for Little Pie and for the wisdom of the book actually helping to save my life. Oh, wow. And then when I started looking at, at other literature, as you say, for solace or for guidance or for a mentor, I, I was able to find it maybe less in books specifically about rape and more in literature that handles a character or an individual who is deeply flawed, but in a very holistic way. And it really helped me to, to think about the, the Jaguar man in a rounded way as a full individual, as opposed to a person reduced to one act or several hours. And I think that's one of the beauties of literature is that it really, when written well, a book can show us the complexity of anyone's life, right? I love the expression yeah. that we are more than the worst thing that's been done to us and more than the worst thing that we have done. Oh, I love and, that. Mm -hmm, isn't that beautiful? Yes. And so during the abduction, you said a prayer for the perpetrator. And afterward, you counted yourself lucky for both surviving the ordeal and saving him from becoming a murderer. Mm. How do people respond to your ability to forgive and even sympathize with the Jaguar man? I'm not entirely sure how to answer how other people respond to that. I think that talking about it has been uncomfortable for many people. I okay. think rape is an uncomfortable topic. And so when I have shared my experience with others, I tend to get an enormous amount of support. Okay. Um, but I don't know that people feel comfortable so much kind of poking at it or saying, well, you know, why or how did you have this, this reaction? Yeah. Um, you know, I think people are just very, very deeply respectful of the fact that a person's response is very individual. And I've been lucky to have those kinds of supportive people in my life to just allow me to feel and think and, and respond in my own personal ways. But I do think that it runs counter to the way we typically talk about a sex offender in our society. And, um, you know, I talk very little about forgiveness, but I talk a lot about compassion. Yes. And I'm still not entirely sure the relationship between the two. I think I'm still working that out. But I'm really clear about compassion. And compassion is seeing somebody else's suffering and wishing for it to be relieved. And that was my driving response to the Jaguar man from the moment that we met. It was so clear that I was caught into his madness, into his pain. It had nothing to do with me. And because that was so clear from the get-go, I wasn't ever confused about, you know, am I doing something wrong? Is this somehow about me? I was able to, once I f kind of recognized that he was the one in pain and he was the one who needed to be well, like, like Pi discovered about his, you know, his tiger, yeah. in the, that once I discovered that, then I was able to put my attention on him and, and start to care for him. Yeah, care for and care about. I would not wish for anyone to be in that much pain. That they, that there's so much uh, that they can't hold in them, in their own emotional body that it has to come out as violence against somebody else. That's a terrible place to be yes. for anyone. Oh, yeah. I agree. Yeah. 
And so once you'd returned to the U.S. afterward, what surprised you the most about the care, or should I say the lack of care, you received from medical personnel or, or therapists? And would you have any input or suggestion for how we can improve the care for assault victims? Yeah, that's such a great question. I was really surprised how ill-equipped people in the medical scene were in the emergency room and even my primary care physician. They didn't really know where the resources were, you know, and I was, I was already a grown woman. I was you know, I, I had skills and, and I, I know how to do research and, you know, find help. But I really had to do that on my own with my, my circle of friends and family, you know, to discover where I was going to get the best support. Oh, wow. So I, I was surprised by that. I was surprised by how uncomfortable even some of the, um, the social service professionals were in the conversation about rape. Yeah. So I did work hard to find somebody who could counsel me in a way that made sense to me. And thankfully, I, I found that person. I found a couple of people who, who were hugely helpful to me. But I had to work to find it. Yes. And I think that any advice I would have would be, you know, I, I guess the fact that rape is, is such a, a whispered conversation, and I don't think it needs to be. You know, one of the things that I was most surprised by is that even in the wonderful rape treatment center that I went to, I asked if there were group sessions and it was explained to me that they don't have group sessions because a lot of times women feel ashamed. And I thought, well, that to me would speak to perhaps a great need for a group session, right? So that we can talk to each other, heal together, grapple with some of these really challenging reactions to our own experience and, uh, and help each other along the way. So I still have yet to find um, a group session. I, I must admit, I haven't looked incredibly hard across the country. But, And I know that if it's this difficult to find help for a person who has been raped, how almost impossible it would be to find help if you are the one who's the perpetrator. Oh, yeah. I never thought about that. Where do you go? And you mentioned in the book that one in every six women experiences something like this. So it's definitely something that needs to be addressed. Yeah. My big question, you know, if it's one in six women who will either be, who will experience a sexual assault or an attempted sexual assault in her lifetime, that's just counting the women, right? We don't have good statistics about the men. Although oh, yeah. I think that the, the latest statistic I read is it's one in 33 males who will experience a sexual assault or an attempted sexual assault. So, and that's a huge number as well. Yeah. I mean, people of all genders are being assaulted and the majority of the people performing the assaults are males Yeah. and we're not counting those people, you know? And so one of the things that I've started thinking about is just how many men does it take to assault one in six women? I mean, that's a huge number yeah. and we're not really dealing with the men. We're not looking at what is at the root of this action, this decision, the sickness, you know, it's an epidemic. That's yeah. a lot of people. And I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about your writing process. There are several uses of repetition in the book. And one example that I decided to go with is a sentence, two sentences, watching something happen changes the way it happens. The more you observe, the greater the effect. Why did you decide to use that style and especially as it applies to the sentence that I just mentioned? 
Right. So I use that in several different places throughout the book. And I, I repeat it because it reflects something different each time it comes up, that something is either being watched and the, the very act of watching it changes it. Now that's, um, that's a principle of physics and I'm not a physicist. So I don't, I, I can't speak to it very well. And I know physicists kind of hate when writers use physics as metaphor. And yet I just couldn't help myself. <laughs> it was just too, it was just too beautiful. Yeah. And true. And true. Right. And true. So I used repetition because I just don't think that this has been a linear experience. I think that reactions to it, emotion, the emotional reaction, the, the mental, the intellectualizing around, you know, what has happened. It just, it tends to come up in, in kind of a circular way. And so I wanted the writing to reflect that as well. Um, so as I kind of circle back to an idea, I apply it in a, in a different form or to mean something slightly different. And yet, you know, hopefully that there is movement along the way through that. Okay. The, I wanted to ask you about the inexplicable lights that appeared during your abduction that more than likely saved your life when they appeared. Um, can you describe what you think those lights were? In the moment that the lights appeared, I was absolutely certain that they were from a bus coming out of the sea. There was no question in my mind. It didn't occur to me to question. Well, it did. It occurred to me that that was odd and strange that a bus would be coming out of the sea, but it was just so obvious to me that that's what those lights were. So much that I prepared myself to flag down the bus as I knew it would pass me by and get help. Oh my goodness. And so, of course, the, the lights they they shone and then they disappeared they dis- they shone the moment that the jaguar man was at his most violent it startled him enough to put down the knife and kind of give us both a, a moment to just pause breathe and th- and the moment shifted and as soon as the moment shifted the lights disappeared no bus of course ever passed me on the on the road and i have no idea where the lights went so the lights have continue to this day to confuse me. I don't know what they were. I'm just so thankful for them. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Tell us more about your work as a compassion cultivation trainer at the Sea Care Center. When I returned from Belize, I had so many questions about compassion because I, I had seen how powerful it was in the face of violence that it, it, didn't, it didn't happen immediately, but it was able to dissolve the Jaguar man's rage and, uh, and, ch- and change the situation enough for me to, to be able to survive. So for a couple of years, I was writing about compassion and, and trying to read about it on my own. And then I discovered the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. And it's a center that's housed in Stanford University's medical school. It was started by some neuroscientists who were studying the effects of compassion on the brain, and they teamed with contemplative scholars and and researchers and psychologists to design a mindfulness-based eight-week compassion cultivation training course in order to help people just cultivate more compassion for themselves and others. So I became trained to teach this course, and really the one of the, the main reason that I I went to the 
to Stanford to to train was because I just wanted to learn more about this very powerful thing, compassion. Yeah. And so now I am teaching the, they call it CCT, Compassion Cultivation Training. And I teach it as the eight-week course, as it's designed by Stanford. And I'm also, because I'm a, a writing teacher, I also offer workshops that incorporate personal narrative writing and compassion training. So that when people are facing their own stories, they do so with compassion for themselves, but also compassion for the antagonist in their life. So again, it kind of opens up this ability to think about either self or other as a whole person, as opposed to a, a single moment or a single act. Yeah, um, exactly and how you were able to deal with what happened to you, kind of like paying it forward in a way. Yeah. And I'll tell you, my ultimate goal is to have this book read by a group of sex offenders and have a, and be able to, to participate with them in a book discussion and in a, and in compassion workshops. I think that would, there's so much need for the offenders to get help and to be cared for. And I'm really hoping that this book can somehow find its way to, um, to people who it would be useful for in that way. That's extremely admirable. And I wish you the best of luck with all of that work. That's incredible. Um, thank you. And thank you so much for joining us, Laura. And also thank you to the audience for listening. Join us for the next LitCast. <laughs>